Paul Ruse here from Performance by Design and welcome to the Culture Couch. I've got two of my business partners today, Jared Murphy and Emil Studham. And we're going to go through Emil's journey, Murph, so I'll bring you into the conversation shortly. But we're going to start with Emil's bio because, uh, Murph, as you know, he demanded to be known as a semi-professional footballer. Indeed. Emil, can you explain that? Why? Uh, no, I can't. I'm going to let this one down. Just, just my time over here in Canada uh, just made me look pretty good. <laughs> and I carried that bio into my Australian life, which is the biggest regret of my entire professional career. Well, as you know, I coach, my first coaching gig was USA versus Canada. And people oh, used to yes. say to me, do you know uh, Emil Studham? He's the great AFL semi-professional football. I've never, <laughs> heard, I've, never, I've never heard of you in my life. So you've caused me problems for the last 20 years, mate. Um, now, in all seriousness... Tell us about your, your journey. I mean, it's been an amazing journey. And as I said, I'll bring Murph in shortly um, yeah. because he plays a significant role within that journey. But, but tell us about life for you and where it got to and how you ended up in Toronto. Yeah, I, my background was um, I studied kinesiology or human movement at Vic Uni in Footscray. And as part of that journey, I did six months student exchange um, here in Toronto, a place just west of Toronto. And um, fell in love with Canadians and the lifestyle here and kept coming back and forwards a little bit. And then in 2002, when I was in Melbourne, I was doing my diploma of education. I was challenged by a mate here in Toronto, where I am now, during the crisis. And um, to come over and start a footy team in the league, in the Ontario League called the Etobicoke Kangaroos, with my mates from university, but also then, um, as a job, teach kids how to play Aussie rules football in school. So I got a bunch of Auskick gear from the AFL that was redundant shipped it over and started running Aussie Auskick clinics in schools in Toronto. Um, but the biggest challenge I had day one was that I realised being 23, 24 at the time, I couldn't rent a car. So I had my big plans, I had my big bag of, um, big ice hockey bag full with footies, trying, trying to catch a, a rental car to the schools, but I had to catch trams, trains and buses, which was a fairly um, uh, challenging experience, but in that year we saw about 11,000 kids and taught them footy through schools and it was a wonderful experience with a couple of mates. Then I came back to Australia, taught for four years, but never really lost this passion for building something more um, in the space of youth development. Um, footy was a great leveller in, in our first year. Most of our schools were private girls' schools and footy really wasn't played by girls back then. Um, and so in 2008, I threw caution to the wind and came back, was able to rent cars and actually built a, a proper business, if you will, called Aussie X. And um, that started to grow. And then, and then through my journey, I realised I needed support in the leadership space. And that's how Jared and I eventually met. Well, we'll take us through that period. And then I'll defer to, to Merv. Take yeah. us through, because it was a pretty tough time for you, wasn't it? In a, a young entrepreneur trying to build a business and yeah. looking through your eyes, what did it look like at that particular stage? Yeah, so 2008 to 2010 was really fun. It was sort of all the up and about, all the excitement, uh, making enough money for everyone to have a pretty good lifestyle. And then the team kind of grew quite quickly from 5 to 10 to 15. And around 2011, the cracks in my leadership started to form. Um, I wasn't really, didn't really build much middle management, um, but I always had this belief that I wanted to build a company where this, the team felt like they owned the company as much as I did. Um, I had a great partner at the time and we were doing some great stuff, but from a personal perspective as the leader of the group, I was struggling with honest conversations. 
Uh, I was the only physical education teacher of the company per se. So when something went wrong, I thought it was my job as a leader to fix it as opposed to sort of, I guess, empower the team to, to do their job. And bit by bit, I started putting more jobs on my shoulders and ultimately not speaking my truth at that time. And I knew that I had to change that because, you know, even now that we do this consulting work, it really does start with the leader. Um, so doing some deep, dark sort of searching, I realised I needed some support. And Jared, I tracked his career at Geelong and I'd also understood that his company had done some work with Sydney, specialising in this concept of honest and, and what we call real talk conversations. And that's how we eventually got connected through a mutual friend. Now, Murph, I'll bring you in. So when you first saw Emil, I guess it was firstly a bit of a surprise to actually get an email or a phone call or whatever. So take us through that period, but also what do you see in Emil as the leader at that stage? Yeah, I got this phone call um, from this guy in Toronto um, asking me if I uh, could help him out and come over and spend some time with him. And it was, to be honest, it was a bit shocking. Um, coincidentally, he, he knew my wife. And so I said to Liz, what do you think I should do? And she said, well, why don't you go and, and see how it goes? So um, at that stage, we were living in London. So I flew from London to Toronto for two weeks and um, spent those two weeks working with Emil and, and we did some corporate work in the monks that, which we'll talk about later. Um, yes. when I, when I Take us through that, yeah, Murph, just the original, original maybe, the, the first meeting, because I... I mean, we love the first meetings, whether that be with the CEO or whether it be with the whole team. So even that first meeting with Emil, what did you see on that first day? Yeah, so I walked into the office, which was a like a warehouse, very open plan um, building in Toronto. And there was, you know, guys spread out, desks, desks everywhere. And Emil was all full, of, full of energy, like so energetic, lots of great ideas but was probably slightly erratic, if I'm honest, um, and was trying to do everything himself. So we, we got started and the team really jumped in. They, they, they had a great time, really enjoyed the process. Um, and we worked our way through to the point where we, we sat a meal down later in the day and uh, had some real talk with him, the, a, a team reflection, self-reflection from a meal as well. And it opened up really frank conversation about where Emil may go in terms of leading that group. And it's probably a good time to bring Emil in, I think, in terms of um, do you remember that day and reflecting on it, what do you take out of it? No, I, I remember it really clearly because it was, it was November 1st, 2011, um, very prominent day. Emotionally at the time I was really struggling um, and I from home reflection, it was because I wasn't being honest with the staff um, and I was feeling out of integrity because I was taking on too much. And um, it was a pretty lonely place for me, actually. That's not a great feeling to have when it's something that you built and worked with some great people to, to create. So um, I was excited for it because I knew as much as it was um, going to be a challenging day and, and almost confronting in a lot of ways, uh, something inside of me knew that I needed it. Uh, and I knew enough about your work and your experience in this space. Plus, you had some mutual friends that we knew in Toronto as well. So um, when I experienced my leader real talk exercise and left the room and reflected on my own performance, um, 
the mirror came up in front of my face. And then I came back in and what was quite beautiful, I use the word beautiful, was the team gave me some feedback that was really um, awesome for me that I didn't know that they thought about me. So by the time it came to getting the feedback of where I needed to change and improve, I was very ready, I guess, emotionally to receive it. So um, that was a fantastic experience um, and it was a, a great connector uh, with a great group of people. Plus, you know, you know Jez, that the group were, were all in and they just basically told me, please get out of the way, let us do our job. And then over the next little while, you, you sort of supported me on, on helping me identify what does that actually look like here. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of points there. Um, the first one is I think 100% that, that you were getting in their way, that you weren't having honest conversations and were taking on too much. Yeah. But just picking up the lonely piece, I, mm. I suspect they didn't know that you were lonely at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I might be wrong and, and we've never discussed this. So why wouldn't you have shared that with them? Because a lot of them were your close friends. Yeah, yeah. I think um, when you, yeah, sort of loops around to when you don't, um, don't speak honestly, you, I was looping some, the same thoughts and they weren't actually leaving my, my mind, if you will, um, which created a, they don't understand me um, because the loop was so consistent of not, speaking up uh, I remember even being in some parties and going like I just don't even want to be here you know we used to <laughs> one of our things we used to party a little bit back in those days as a group um but I just remember sometimes like no, no one in my entire organization and all around me know what I'm feeling because because they were my close mates um I couldn't turn to them in social settings because they were what I was thinking about and then my other group of friends kind of worked in the corporate sector for someone else. I didn't have any other mates per se that were business owners. So conversations kind of didn't, I never got to have the conversation I needed to have. But in the My Leader Real Talk exercise, we got to have it. And I just remember the feelings in my shoulders, like my traps started to ease and even the, my voice changed and a few things like that. So um that, that was what came up for me on that day. There was definitely a, an actual physical feeling of release and it was, yeah, it was really cool. And I think part of that too, it's a great message to leaders listening. There's this notion as a leader, you have to do everything yourself, you know, mm. and that self-awareness to realise, I actually have got help. And fundamentally, yeah. that's really the basis of what we try and do, guys, isn't it? Is make shareholders rather than this top-down approach. So it's a really good message Hopefully people have taken that on board, that leaders. You don't need to know everything and you can ask for help. And I also want to bring both of you in the conversation. What were some of the, over that two-week period, what were the, some of the challenges, Emil, that you faced through the you know, purpose, values, behaviours, you know, setting up your, you know, what you stood for? What were some of the challenges during that period? Um, in the very first kickoff session, we were able to actually land on our team identity, our our statement around our values of extraordinary impact. The first challenge for me out of the team of 20 or 21, I think we had at the time, is when we had a vote, everyone except for me um, wanted that. And I was like, oh, it doesn't, it's just not sitting with me for whatever reason. And Jez asked me a great question, which we still use today. Was, you know, can you live with it? Can you live with extraordinary impact? And I remember 
a moment in my life from another coach talking to me about what I wanted to create as um, I was building Aussie X and it was about building a team where they felt like they owned the company as much as I did and shareholders to your wording, Uzi. And that moment came up and I said, well, hang on, if I'm going to create an environment where it's us and not me and my show, I said, yes, I think I can live with it. And then um, that really set the tone that Extraordinary Impact became our identity. Um, that was my first big challenge of the, of the process, yeah. And that's a make or break moment, Murph, isn't it? So as a facilitator, when you're working in that environment, if you can remember that, it is a make or break moment. What, what was going through your mind at the time? hundred percent, Rizzy. Like at that moment, um, the the system will either work or it won't. And so, if Emil says no, I've heard what you've said. Nineteen of you want to do it, but I've decided to go another way because it's my company and I'm the boss. Uh, it doesn't matter what happens from that point on. Everyone goes, well, why would we bother? He's not going to listen anyway. So for Emil to sort of step back, consider it and take it on, it just meant that the group were then allowed to um, buy in and know that he was going to listen and lead with them, not not tell them what to do. And so we we regularly say to leaders, if you, if you can live with it, don't argue for the sake of arguing. Just go with it and listen to what the group is saying and then we'll work through it as we go along. But, but Emil's capacity not to say no right then um, made a massive difference to uh, the group and where the company will go in the future. And I think the other thing too is the leader almost has to accentuate it, doesn't it? So the leader not only has to walk out of there agreeing, but the leader has to almost continually over-exaggerate or emphasise. So, Emil, the next two to three months, Murph's been there for a couple of weeks, he's left. Um, what, what did that look like from a company point of view after uh, Jared had been there? Yeah, so first things first, um, we had a whole wall was all whiteboard and we had a, an, an actual whiteboard central to the front of the office. I plastered it with extraordinary impact and the behaviours that we created. Um, I drew some diagrams um, of the key learnings that we got from the session because we were all in. A lot of us were, were footy guys, Aussie footy guys. So we knew of Geelong's success and your success. So we were all about it. So the signage was big insight in mind. And, yeah, to be, to be really honest, for the first bit, um, Jess said to me, keep using extraordinary impact in your language. Um, and, I'm, you know, as says, I'm a pretty positive, up and about, passionate kind of guy. Um, and it felt a bit weird at the start. It felt a little bit awkward. But I've come to learn that that's really important because the more I used it, the more they used it and role modelled and it just became this, this thing. Um, and to the point where extraordinary impact got turned into EI and then everything was just, can we have an EI? Are we having an EI on the kids and the teachers and the parents? And it just got into our language. And then once it got into our language, it just became... Um, it was really cool to watch the company grow and at the same time I started to do less um, and felt better and felt more connected um, and started to create the environment um, with my partner and my leaders that I really wanted to create. And did, did that have an impact on the performance of the company? Uh, it was amazing. Um, our decision-making became faster, particularly on people. 
we used the EI as that we used EI as a litmus test. Will this person have an extraordinary impact on the kids? Um, first and foremost, and and that and even if we had to pick between people, that was the deciding factor. Who will have more of an EI? If we believe that all three would, who would have more of an extraordinary impact? Became that. Um, and our efficiencies, we were able to cut some costs because we weren't making mistakes. We weren't, we were looking after the equipment better because we've got behaviours around how do you look, what does it look like to have an extraordinary impact on the equipment? Because that was one of our big costs is losing footies and kids stealing footies and so forth and wrecking the bags. And if you can have an extraordinary impact on your teammates, you take care of your, your footy bag and your cricket bag and your netball to doing those sports as well. So efficiencies and... Um, yeah, just our productivity um, improved as a result of that. Right. The other point you raised earlier, which I think is really important, mate, is um, around language. Mm. So one of the one of the things you mentioned it was it was a little bit clumsy, yeah. felt a little bit unusual at the start, but it's so important because if you don't change your language, then the behaviour won't change either. And yeah. it, it, even though it feels a bit uncomfortable, we, we have to make the effort to change the language. And, and that, that will then drive a whole lot of behaviours afterwards. Have you, you, you would agree with that, Rizzi? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that's why we talk about how important the leader is being the role model. If you're hearing the vernacular or, or, or the action or the behaviour, if, if you're not talking about it and you're not acting it, it's very hard for people to pick it up. Now, we, we talk a lot about, isn't it, the, f- the best person to ask about your culture is the most recent person that's arrived because they're not, they're not reading the HR manual. They're, they're looking at the actions and listening to the words that, that go on. So, Emil, it is really imp- How long do you think that took for the others to pick that up and how big a challenge was it for you to do that? Yeah, um... That's a good question. It's a while ago now, but, yeah, it does feel awkward. I've come to learn that every change, irrespective of what it is, feels awkward and there's resistance to it, both sort of mentally and physically even. So it just felt a bit like, um, I guess the word's corny, but and awkward and all sort of stuff. But then you get your, your one or two guys and gals who are kind of the centres of influence. If you get them on board... And Simon Sinek talks about this a little bit, about that, that 13% that are in, getting them to buy in and then they sort of have this um, sort of hockey curve type effect. But, yeah, look, the signage was good because it was right above where we met as a team. So you could kind of refer to it and I would knock on the door, I would knock on the wall as well on the EI sign. And then we made fun. Like we had ticks and we had like a scoreboard of EI who, who got an EI shout out and we made it, it became really fun. And then we put awards, we named things. So there was Friday night, the EI awards and we do a Brownlow type of vote for the week. And we just turned it into wherever we could use it as a name of something, it, be, it was attached to it. And so you just had to naturally use it in your language and then it just became normal. And so yeah. people would come in and then they were like, EI, EI, EI. <laughs> And it's, oh, little, God, it's little and often, isn't it? You, you, you guys talk about that a lot, don't you? The little and often conversations that you have. So every opportunity you have to use the wording to um, reward and challenge behaviours, it's, it's, it's so important. 
Um, Murph, what, did, what, what were you seeing over that period of coming backwards and forwards and the evolution from your point of view of, of Aussie X? Uh, the, the biggest thing I, when I returned 12 months later was that Emil was able to step back and he trusted the guides. And so um, I think it was about the same time he went on Dragon's Den, Emil, a little bit later. And so your business grew quickly, but, it, but what you'd been able to do was put in place systems and structures that enabled the guys um, that were sitting below who were super competent to, by Emil creating some space, they actually grew into that space. And so if Emil hadn't created that space, if he had to stay where he was, those guys would have just stayed there. They probably would have got frustrated and ultimately left. But by Emil creating that space, he grew as a person. He grew as a leader. He was having better conversations. He felt better. But those guys stepped up and they were running the business. That was the exciting thing for me. Within the next couple of years, these guys were running the business and Emil was doing what he should have been doing. And ultimately, you know, he ended up in, the, in our space. Yeah, that's probably the next question, Emil, is, is from you. How, how, tell us through that transition period of Aussie X into to doing the leaderships in, in Toronto with some of the businesses over there. Yeah, it, that's exactly, Jez is exactly right. Uh, I just want to touch on one thing. What the, and how I was able to extend out and have Kayla and Connor really run the show was we also, I was also able to use extraordinary impact as the starter of a sentence to challenge, whereas prior that was my weakness. I didn't know how to challenge and be assertive. So I could say things like, I think we can have more of an extraordinary impact here and then go, what do you guys reckon we could do? And that, I just kept on using that type of question pattern um, and that actually was the how to get out of that. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that because that's a really important distinction of using your team identity to, to let, give that space, as Jez mentioned. Um, yeah, so then from that point on, I just started talking. Um, I joined an entrepreneur group. That was probably the best thing I ever did after it. I joined a group of people that were going through the same challenges. And I would share stories of extraordinary impact. And then we went on TV onto Dragon's Den, which gave us a little bit of prominence in the entrepreneur sector of Toronto. Um, so people could see our episode on Dragon's Den. So it gave us a little bit of a conversation starter. But just by virtue of having extraordinary impact, it came up and they go, how did you get this extraordinary impact thing? I'd share a story and then I'd say, listen, give me your team for three hours and say, I might try and help you out. So I started running pro bono workshops and just calling up Jez every couple of weeks and saying, I've got this program, give me some coaching, tell me, tell me what to do sort of thing. And of course, Jez would ask me, what do you reckon? That was perfect. Um, so then I started using that on my team as well, asking a question with a question. Uh, and then I started running workshops for my peers and then bit by bit selling them to, to corporations. And every time it was a decent-sized group that was enough um, revenue, I guess, Jez would fly over for a couple of weeks and we'd do more training for Aussie X and also with these companies we were working with. And eventually, in one of our sessions, the team said, um, we think you should just do this work professionally and let us run the company. And I thought that was just wonderful. Yeah, and, and we did... Sorry, I was going to say, Reese. we did some really good work as well with corporate groups. So um, one of the groups that is still using the team identity, I know, is a big company, a company called Boston Pizza. Um, 
where Emil and I co-facilitated the session. So I was training Emil and, and we were working through how, how we could grow into this space. Um, and uh, the work that they did around Be Remarkable, it, it, was, it was fantastic and drove the company for, for all, yeah. but it still does. Yeah, yeah, that was quite, that, well, it wasn't a very remarkable program. Well, take, take us through that. For those of you who don't know too, Dragons then is the shark tank of Toronto, just for the, for the people at home. So getting that profile yeah. through shark tank or drag, Dragons Den was obviously big for you. But when, when you moved into that space, run us through a couple of the wins and, and how, you know, I guess we're all here because you're so committed to it, so excited about it. But maybe the, the first couple of wins when you were going through that process of running workshops, how important was that to you? Yeah, it was big. Well, actually, the Dragons Den episode, the, the owner of Boston Pizza was the man that shook our hand. Um, the deal never eventuated, but we became kind of mates with him. Um, went to an event, um, and Caleb, a business partner at the time, who still who now runs the company X Movement, which is Aussie X has transformed into, she um, spoke about um, our work in, in this space and sold them a program at this party at one of the Boston Pizzas. And so then we had to get back home the next day and call Jared and say, hey, Jez, are you okay to come over to Canada and run this program with us, with their marketing team? It was with the marketing manager, Steve. Fantastic guy and a great group of people. The very first session that I actually, that we sold and they purchased was two days, half of Aussie Rules Footy and half of the facilitation. So we had never done this sort of thing before, but we were good at getting people active out of their comfort zone and in a nice, safe environment. And Jez was just so brilliant at the facilitation piece. The day one, we emerged. Um, we broke them into four teams, the kangaroos, kookaburras, koalas, and dingoes, and so forth. We would run some footy, and then Jez would come in with the facilitation work. Then the second day, we actually took the team through the normal process where they created um, their set of values and their team identity of Be Remarkable. So that was actually the first time we worked together with a client and um, it was magnificent. You would have thought that we'd been working together for years. So that really set the tone because we were able to use and leverage their name as a, as a primary client. Um, and then some other engineering groups were really cool to work with. And look, to be honest, no one was doing this type of work in Canada. So word spread relatively quickly and easily through um, this particular entrepreneurs organisation and we were able to get some runs on the board quite quickly and it was extremely enjoyable. Just loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And then, so, and then your, your view of Emil as the, the leader entrepreneur to the facilitator and, and going through that process with Emil, um, how did you help him? What did you see? How was the transition? So from your eyes. Uh, <clears throat> Emil, when I started working with Aussie X, Emil... Um, he he fundamentally took it on, so he he became you know what you would call the ultimate role model leader. Um, and then as he was growing, we we were just having these chats. And I, as I said, we I'd go to Toronto and we'd facilitate co-facilitate sessions with companies. And and my advice to him was, you need to move into this space and let the others run the company. Um, and so ultimately, that's what we were always aiming at was a meal. Um, developing his skill sets to be able to go in, move into this space full time, and and the reason I, I think Emil is such a fantastic facilitator today is because 
He's been a leader in a company, so he's done it. So when you see someone that's actually been through the process, has lived it, has, I mean, it wasn't all, uh, it wasn't all success either. Emil, Emil's had some ups and downs along the way in terms of managing people and, yeah. and, and driving the performance of a company. When, when you've got someone that's been through the process like that and then they move into our space, their stories are fantastic. So he, he, he um, understands deeply what leaders are going through and I think that's been a fantastic evolution um, of his career path. And then coming back to Australia, probably probably leads us into Australia, Emil. How, how did you find the move back to Australia and into doing this work full time? Yeah. Um, so that's where it was. Our fourth partner came into play. I started consulting for him in 2016 with his marketing firm that he was running um, in Melbourne from a Boston central location and running the, I think, the Bangalore and Japan and Singapore offices. He was the running ragged, just a really high performer and started consulting for him and his team. Um, got some really great results and I'm really proud to say that I helped him move out of that company because he just wasn't enjoying it. It was just, yeah, just not enjoying the whole journey, um, much like I wasn't inside of my own company as well, just for different reasons, I think. So then... Um, once we became a quartet after I left X Movement and we became a quartet, we moved back at the start of January, yeah, 2019. And um, the shift, the cultural shift of Australia and Canada and the USA, we, um, we're pretty good at the real talk, I think, as a culture of Australians, but we slice it in with humour, which was obviously one of my big gaps early on. Um, we have we banter too much. We have sarcasm when we're actually delivering an honest message when we shouldn't do that. The Canadians, the Canadian uh, corporate culture is a bit more passive aggressive. They actually won't lean into that conversation. They'll have it over here, and it, and it impedes productivity and progress. And then um, by experience in the states was a little bit. They're just <laughs> they're kind of at each other. They're so competitive. They forget about the care and empathy piece. So each, each sort of dynamic has its own unique challenges. But, yeah, coming back to Australia has been um, a challenge and just always growing, always learning. Um, but fundamentally, people are people and when you can provide them the framework and the structure to have a safe and honest conversation, what's beautiful is the results are the same. The impact is very similar. You're just playing with a few different um, dynamics, if you will. I'm just going to finish off with this question, Emil. Do you think businesses, people, sporting clubs fully understand how important a great culture is to their success? Uh, you know what? I, I was just having a conversation before we jumped on here. I honestly think that this um, epidemic, uh, pandemic and this crisis, it's actually going to help make a transition for leaders to understand how important their people are. When we think about culture, we think about the behaviours that we accept and reward of each other. At PVD, we think about the strength of your internal relationships. A lot of a lot of companies we often work with will focus so heavily on the customer and forget about the relationships internally. And you know, I think if you get that part right, you'll manage adversity faster. All these beautiful things will come on. You'll get great results, but you'll also make people feel safe and connected at work, which is something that's very deeply ingrained in our belief system amongst us four. 
Um, but yeah, I think that the short answer is no, I don't think leaders actually appreciate how important their people are. And I do hope on the positive side of this crisis that we'll start to realise that we need to care for each other a bit more and spend a bit more quality time internally. And if we get that right, um, you know, I think the results kind of look after themselves. And Murph, I'm going to leave the last word to you because we, we touch on a lot, role model leaders. I mean, it's one of the foundations of what we do. What, what makes over the transition period of a meal, what do you think if you pick one or two things where he's changed or what makes him a great facilitator, great leader? What are the things that you've seen? I think <clears throat> I was just going to pick up one of Emil's points there as part of this, I think, is I think that um, leaders, every leader wants to have a great culture, but they don't always understand what it is or how they can get it and, and the systems that you need in place and, and the role model component, which you, you talk about regularly, Rizzi. So it, if you go back to Emil as an example of this, he sort of knew what he wanted, but he, he hadn't got clear in his own head, his own mm. personal values and behaviours. Mm. So what, once he sat down and worked through his own personal values and behaviours and then <coughs> excuse me, worked through that with his team, <coughs> excuse me, guys, <coughs> worked through that with his team, he was then able to become the leader that they, <clears throat> they needed. And as a result of that, he, his growth went through the roof, as, as did theirs. And so it's about understanding yourself first so that you've got really clear values and behaviours so you know where you're going, how you're going to get there, what it looks like, what you're going to reward, what you're going to challenge, and, and then working with your team to do the same. So I don't know if I've answered your question, Rosie, but that that's a real sort of he 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 ultimately got that personal understanding. Well, I think it's a great way to finish because people have often ask us what are the best companies to work with, what size company, etc. It's where the where the leaders want to be part of it. It's where the leaders are prepared to say, I want to be vulnerable. I want to set some behaviours. I want to be held accountable. It, it doesn't matter what company it is, what size. But it's a, it's a great answer to the question, Murph, because it really sums up what we do and it probably sums up Emil's journey over that period of time. So hopefully for everyone out there listening, they've got some really good insight into that. So thanks to Emil, thanks to Murph, and we'll see you guys again next time on The Culture Couch. Mm-hmm.